What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It's episode 22 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, my co-conspirator, if you will, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's happening? It's a pumped up week, hey, yo, which is always good for us, for those listeners, for anybody hearing the voice. The whole shebang of the What's Real got the Pulsation Nation kind of week going on here. and 22 episodes, man, reminds me of Emmett Smith, even though he has nothing to do with the episode. I just correlate sports numbers to numbers because I'm a goof. But that's the first We're thing the I scoring see. champions, that's why. Yeah, like at my job when I'm measuring a house, I'm like, oh, it's 22 feet. Emmett Smith, so I don't forget. Because I'm yeah, a weird Yeah, I do that shit too. Well, it's it, oddly enough, I do it more now that I'm older than I used to because, uh, you know, fucking become forgetful which reminds me just offhand uh the other day i was listening to an older episode and i cut the blooper part at the end and i was cry laughing yeah because the, 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 you're just you being like the 20 20 20 20s 20 20 20 20 <laughs> like if if you guys don't know what we're talking about you obviously missed it but you know there's something so, sometimes you want to listen to the very very end because uh we'll throw in horrible fuck-ups um, but that one was hilarious. It's the, you know, speaking of forget, as I forget what episode we were doing at the time. It was twenty because I—that's uh, the thing. Like that's why it's so funny. <laughs> 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 that's why it's so funny. Like we always say, dude, the unintentional humor. Like I wasn't even trying to be funny, and you're just—you're like, this is ep- episode twenty, right? And I'm like, yeah, because it's twenty 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 twenty, and I just did that <laughs> just naturally. <laughs> You're like, yeah, we got to restart, but that was good. Yeah, but it legit got a laugh out of me for sure. Uh, But, uh, yeah, man, we have a lot of weird stuff, uh, as usual, on the show. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, Of course, later on in the show, we're going to be talking uh, Dark Side of the Ring, Owen Hart. Uh, The very first episode uh, since The Last Dance uh, ended. But uh, ESPN's doing 30 for 30 documentaries on Sunday night. And we're going to take a look at part one of Lance Armstrong. Thursday Night Prime, we have a legendary Thursday Night Prime uh, film from 1995, Night of the Running Man, with Scott Glenn and Andrew McCarthy. And of course, as usual, we have goofs or goofs. But uh, before we get into all that stuff, man, uh, a couple things I wanted to mention. Uh, This was kind of weird earlier on in the week. I figured that that, uh, we talked about it so much on some of the earlier episodes that it would be, you know... Uh, good idea to bring it up here, but there's been reports that Vince McMahon is trying to buy back the XFL, um, in which the WWE was like, I forget the percentage, but it was a large percentage owner of the league anyways. So, um, you know, it sounds like he's just trying to buy it back in case of future, you know, opportunities to open it back up again, or just for licensing reasons and stuff like that. But, uh, it doesn't surprise me. I know a lot of people in the sport world were kind of surprised by it, but yeah, they're not as familiar with Vince as we are. Exactly. I just don't think he's going to give up on it ever until he's, no. he's buried. Yeah, I mean, that's how he is with every fucking thing. I'm surprised he's not still trying to put a bodybuilding federation together. I mean, it's initial reports. Like uh, again, it's there's so many things that that can be involved from. You know, it just being rumors or him just maybe throwing around the idea or then him having some sort of financial reason to do so. That's like a loophole that he's like not fully 
planning on like rerunning it. He's just going to like rebuy it to get some money back or, you know, something like that. Like we just don't know at this point what, what the exact specifics are behind it. But um, it, it's like you said, it's for, for two guys that have, have been um, following the WWF and Vince since we were kids, we can tell you that that's no surprise that he's still going to fight that to the death. Like we said, pretty much literally. Yeah, I mean, it's just the kind of the way that he does business. Um, it's going to be a little bit different, I mean, considering he's already being sued by the former commissioner, Oliver Luck, from the XFL. So there's that part of that, too. And, you know, who knows? I, I mean, dude, it's everything's kind of up in the air anyway because, you know, pro sports is really yet to come back. I mean, although we did see a, a very small portion of that this past weekend with the uh, – the celebrity golf with uh, Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning playing against uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, Tom Brady. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I don't really care for golf. I watched a little bit of it. I didn't really, you know, it was okay. But still, I mean, we're, I'd still say that even though all the leagues are talking about opening up and everything, um, you know, we're going to be in a different sports world here for a while. Yeah, it's just the nature of the beast. It's going to be interesting to see what even happens with the NFL, as we keep saying. And the season doesn't open until you know preseason begins in, in August, uh, which is a ways away. But they usually have OT, you know, OTAs in full swing and training camps, uh, you know, going uh, soon. So uh, it's very, very up in the air. And that's the first one that I look at because it's you know the closest sport at this point. I mean, I think the NHL was even throwing around um, something for the teams to vote on about possibly doing a playoff. They're they're doing it. They actually talked about it today, uh, this afternoon. Gary Bettman uh, had like a press conference, and they talked about seeding and stuff. The regular season is over. They're just going to be doing playoffs. They did not announce where any of this is happening. Um, I don't believe they announced a start date either, but the reason why I brought it up is because I saw that the Penguins are slotted as the number five, and they're going to be going against the 12 spot, which is the Montreal Canadiens. So I don't know more details than that. I probably should have looked into it, but it was literally as we were getting ready to record today. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about it more on the show in the future episodes here upcoming. Um, but it looks like hockey's coming back in one way, shape, or form as you know, right now. We'll definitely cover that, man, because uh, that's one of our main sports teams that both you and I are big fans of with the Pittsburgh Penguins. So uh, we'll definitely cover that. And then not to get too far away from it, so I'll pull it back uh, because kind of breaking news, um, an article just popped up from three hours ago, hey, Ed, regarding what we were just mentioning with Vince McMahon and the XFL. And Vince McMahon is saying that he isn't trying to swerve anyone and buy back the XFL, which he put into bankruptcy due to the COVID-19 pandemic after the half season. Um, he has said in quote that the options uh, open in the original filing, um, he had a chance to make up his mind. Uh, the committee's filing last week pushed him to decide against the bid, he said. Quote, I don't know why that's out there, making me out to be the bad guy that I'm going to buy the XFL back for pennies on the dollar, basically. He said this in a disposition, deposition. Um, that helped me move into the direction of I'm not going to be a bidder, not going to have anything to do with it. I do hope that somebody will pay a lot of money for it, and I hope that it will survive. And then there's um, a, a report saying an upset Vince McMahon pulls out of XFL bidding 
but dozens of buyers could mean relaunch next February. So that's another thing we'll have to keep an eye on, but breaking news on that. Yeah, I mean, they said that the uh, the ratings alone were enough to justify keeping the league open. Apparently, yeah, we talked about it in our co- money we, from the TV stuff. Yeah, in our coverage, it was it was pretty stable. You know, it wasn't anything like groundbreaking or crazy, but it was stable and it was making money. So, you know, any any type of big league that starts off in that direction, people that have the the means to be a part of it are definitely going to consider it. I feel. Yeah, uh, you would think so, but uh, you know, time will tell. Uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up on the show is because I think it's cool. It's uh, in the realm of stuff that we like, and I think obviously it would be cool for the listeners. But um, there's a really popular shoe website. It's called Soul Collector. Now, they don't sell shoes generally. It's more news reports, and they announce releases and stuff like that. But they just launched an app last week, and it's a really cool app. It has a lot of the stuff that, you know, you, you would think it would have on it, like, you know, ways to, like, read some of the stuff and watch the videos and stuff that they put out. But the really cool thing about it is it's kind of like a price comparison tool. So, like, if there's a shoe you look, you're looking for, you could type it in the search function, and it'll show you all the online places. And this is, they do it even for, like, secondary market stuff. So, say you're looking for, like, you know, like a Grail shoe or something that's been out for years. Uh, you can look it up on this website, and it shows you all the places online that have it and who has it for the best price. So, I thought that was actually really oh, cool. Oh, I really Again, like that. If you guys want to take a look at that, it's called Soul Collector. Uh, they're, they're, they're also part of, uh, they do a show on YouTube called Full Size Run that I really like. Uh, but the app is completely independent from that stuff, and even if you don't care about their content at all, it's still like a nice tool to use if you're on the search for, you know, a pair of shoes, it, it, whether they're rare or expensive or not. Speaking of searching for shoes, the uh, chunky donkeys dropping tomorrow. Yeah, did you did you try? Did you? Is it? No, they they are they're already out. They came out. Uh, well, then I'm not gonna get them. Okay, because I was going to say they, they came out today, and I, I didn't get them. Yeah, see, I, I had my notification on, but I don't know. I might have missed it. I thought they were coming out tomorrow morning at 10, so there's where the J's at on that one. Yeah, I'm double-checking. Yep, today. Yeah, because as, as we said, I was just planning on trying to cop them. Reselling. And, yeah, and reselling, and I knew it was a far-fetched uh, chance for me to even get my hands on a pair, but... There goes that. <laughs> so breaking on the podcast, yeah. the Jays shut down. Doesn't even know what day they're coming out. Yeah, but you did grab something else, though. I know that. Yeah, I got some uh, Jordan One Lows. Um, I think you said they're SEs. Yeah, that's a. The, I guess the the thing is with that is the materials are a little bit better. Yeah, I got the uh, Hey Ed and I's alma mater, uh, the school district we grew up in, and eventually went to the high school. Uh, here in Pittsburgh, Woodland Hills, the east suburbs. Uh, got the Woodland Hills colors. We're the Woodland Hills Wolverines, black, white, and turquoise. So they're uh, that colorway, which I thought was sick because I still got some uh, gear that's that's those colors too. So, you know, it's going to go go well with the, the wardrobe and in my collection. Yeah, and I told you, man, I saw a review of those online. And, uh, yeah. You know, even though the, the colors are cool, it just wasn't something that was really catching my eye. But that review, I was like, man, they actually they did a really good job with those. And I like I like Lowe's anyway. I know I'm in the minority with that, but I really like the Lowe's. And you know, they're reasonably priced, but they're also you know they're starting to step it up because it looks like you know they were putting them out for a while. There's like a cheap alternative, 
and uh, some of the colorways and shit really sold, and uh, I guess they've kind of stepped it up. And, you know, I mean, it's it's no surprise either because, like, with The Last Dance and shit, uh, the price of ones have been skyrocketing. So, you know, if you can get your hands on any pair at a remotely reasonable price, it's uh, it's not a bad idea to do it. That's what happens when that de- demand pops in, you know, basic ec- economics, supply and demand. You know, just one little yeah, thing like the documentary sparks it and then yep, forget about it. And I'm... I'm sure there's a lot of resellers out there making a mint off this stuff, too. Uh, dude, this is another thing I wanted to bring up to you, because uh, I didn't know about this previously, and I thought it was interesting, and you know how it goes on the show here when it comes to, like, anything pertaining to, like, movie making that's out of the realm of, of normal. Um, but I was reading on uh, Up Rocks this week. Uh, if you guys aren't familiar, it's Up Rocks, U-P-R-O-X-X.com. Uh, they had a interesting story about you know the movie yesterday. Yeah, I read I read the article. Uh, so how the screenwriter's dream became something of a nightmare. I urge you guys to read this if you're interested in movie making. But the short story is uh, this, and I thought this was interesting too. It's it's about a guy uh, named Jack Barth. Okay, uh, and he was like a comedic writer. He was he was somebody that kind of did stuff here and there. Um, like, he produced a television show in the UK. Uh, I thought it was really cool because uh, he wrote an episode of The Simpsons, which is A Fish Called Selma, um, which is a really legendary kind of episode of The Simpsons. But he wrote the screenplay for Yesterday, the movie about where the the guy realizes that the whole world forgot about the Beatles music except for him, so he becomes a huge music star playing the music of the Beatles. Um, well, the screenwriter for this movie kind of got screwed. Um, and he is kind of a like an oddball story because he didn't sell any scripts until he was 62, and be, meaning movie scripts. And this was like his big break. And it's a big long story about how the studio and the producers essentially screwed him. And it's kind of a shame, and obviously it's not new. You know, we hear stories about stuff like this all the time. But I just thought it was interesting. It's an, He's an interesting guy, and it's kind of a shame that this would happen to him. Um, so obviously I'd love for people to check out the story. But, um, you know, what do you think about something like this, man? It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely multifaceted. I mean, you mentioned if, if you're a filmmaker, but this specifically would be if you're a, an aspiring uh, screenplay writer or, or writer for film or television, uh, which, which of course, goes hand-in-hand with, with filmmaking, as Ed said. But, um, you know, this guy, like like Ed was going over, is a, a, a writer. And I have a, a personal attachment to this right away because, um, as I mentioned, I won't going on uh, the usual big tirade with with the independent film stuff we do but the writing that i've done with that has been my own creations with my writing partner where we just take stuff out of our heads and it's worked for our small budget lower budget stuff because we're able to write around our strengths and weaknesses and that sort of thing and that's why we've been able to make the projects we have including two feature films and i just bring all that up because it's it's different than the fully engrossed professional screenwriter obviously like my personal experience however i just have been involved in a project the last couple years with a family friend that is trying to tell his family story 
and sought me out to help him out. And I learned a lot about what Jack Barth and the writer of this particular article are talking about within this because I didn't have the experience um, doing my own films like this until I started this project with the family friend. And you learn a lot about that, man, where you can have a screenplay that, you know, hypothetically, like, so what we've been doing right now, Hayat, and I know I've told you a little bit about it, we're basically taking this family friend's, um, all his stories and everything in his mind and getting it out of his mind and onto paper. That, that's been our yep. first step with this, to, to take it to the next level, start putting it into story form and script form and things like that. And it's been painstaking in a long time because I have to transcribe, you know, he's, he's in his mid-60s and I have to transcribe what he remembers and it's a lot of stop and go and things like that. And it's a painstaking process because I have to listen to his recordings, I have to listen to it for a few minutes, write it out, stop it, things like that. So again, make it a long story story, I don't want to rant too much on this segment, we've got a lot to cover as usual. Uh, but this this is what this brought out of me, this this article. And I'm, I'm so glad you sent it to me and wanted to, to bring it up. Um, so, yeah, just to sum it up, this personal experience, it would be if hypothetically he and I finished the, the uh, head-to-paper process that we're working on, which is almost done. We're, we're, we're towards the end of that, so we're not there yet. That's, that's where we're, we are right now in real life. But hypothetically, going in uh, correlation with this particular article, if we were to finish and write our own script – and sell it, there's a good chance that, uh, especially if it gets picked up by a high-end production company and becomes a bigger budget movie, like with anything, that it would get rewritten, that our names would get completely off of it, and things like that. And I like always thought in my mind, head that like it's like, dude, if it's if it's my script and it's my idea, then I'm the writer, and that's not always yep. the case. And that's what this. You know, basically explains is that this dude, after 40 years in the business and not doing anything major, finally sells a script to two of Britain's um, biggest filmmakers at this point, you know, with Danny Boyle being the director and Oscar winner. And he ends up getting basically pushed under, you know, like he's kept in the credits, but he slowly through this article loses more and more of, of his idea and it becomes kind of something else than was against his original, original intention and things like that. Um, so, so for me, again, correlating the personal experience with reading this article, man, it was, it was super interesting. And like you said, anybody interested in this kind of thing and, and kind of the behind the scenes on what can happen as a screenwriter, this was a great, great article. Yeah, I uh, I learned about this years ago. Um, I met Max Brooks um, at a convention many many years. Yeah, ago. good call. And this is this is when he wrote uh, the Zombie Survival Guide. Okay, and he had already written World War Z, the novel, and it was huge, and it was getting optioned to be a movie. And at the time of meeting, I, like when I met him, I was around a group of people and stuff, and we were all bullshitting. And one of the things somebody brought up to him was about World War Z. They were, like, asking him questions about the movie. And he was like, look, he was like, you know, I got paid for my story, and then I'm pretty much cut out of the process completely. Um, It's up to the screenwriters and everybody to determine his work and to make their version of it and to make the movie. He has no say in any of that. They put his name on it, they pay him, and that's pretty much it. And that was coming from Max Brooks. So... 
that's pretty crazy, but that's just the way that it works in a lot of cases. Um, but then in, there's a lot of cases, too, where the same thing happens, but the person really isn't paid. So that's generally where the problem lies. Um, but yeah, it, it sucks, and it's something that aspiring you know screenwriters and, and storytellers kind of need to know. Um, because there's a huge legal portion to what they do and it can really mess up your career if you're not, you know, aware of what's happening or why it's happening. Yep. Cause there's a lot more to the article and we won't get into everything, but there's a thing in there with even Sarah Silverman's involved with this. Uh, yeah. Cause she, she made that credit. joke with, yeah. yeah, with Harry Potter towards the end. And, um, that kind of just brings up like how, convoluted and muddy this can get if you don't protect yourself you know i think that's the bottom line because i think later on in the article there was even a point um that just before the film had come out a writer in australia got a lot of international press claiming that he had stole uh they had stole the idea from an ebook he wrote and things like that so again going back to what, what i'm going through it's because of articles like this that I am telling my family friend, you know, like my advice and advising him. And he agrees. Like he, he's, he's been around the block in different businesses. Like he knows we are protecting ourselves every step of the way. Like we, we've copyrighted our treatment. You know, we're, we're going to copyright every little step we take because of things like this. And, and this is just a, a kind of great article to tell you exactly that to make sure you protect yourself no matter what. Cause you think like, there's no way that an Oscar winning director is going to steal my idea. Oh yeah, they will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens all the, the time. Is, you, have to, you, you have to understand that everyone in that business is pretty much working on the contingency of what have you done for me lately? Yep. Their next and job. Even though somebody's an Oscar award winner or nominated, uh, you know, whatever, um, a lot of those people are in that position too, whether it's fair or not. So, you know, that it, it's kind of a brutal business in that in that way. So if you're on the creative end and you're looking to break into the business, um, not only do you have do you risk stuff like this happening, but it works that way from every facet. Like if you wanted to be, you know, a, a director of photography, let's say, you can do that, but the chances are is you're going to do that on a bunch of films for nothing first. And I mean, you're going to put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of work in that you will not be paid for. That's just comes with the territory. And the same thing could be said for writing too, even though that's not really the way it's supposed to be. Um, but that's the way that a lot of it works to get in this. And same thing for being an actor or anything director, you name it, like you're going to work for free a lot. Um, and there's a good chance you never get a break at all, let alone a big break. You know what I mean? Like you're lucky to get a paying job, let alone, you know, one where you're famous now or in you're making millions. It's just the nature of the business. Like, like the great philosopher, Razor Ramon, Scott Hall himself always said, it ain't show friends. It's show business. And, you know, <laughs> like that, that's one of the busy, biggest things uh, I took out of the article, too. Um, you know, just as far as like tidbit stuff goes, was the, the film, which we always laugh. We were talking about it just last week in our um, Joe Bob segment, where they're, they're saying the, it had a mo- modest $26 million budget yesterday. Uh, but again, that's the Hollywood scale. So a moderate. Uh, uh, Modest $26 million budget, it ended up grossing $153.7 million worldwide. 
And yep. the guy, this article, this is his idea. This is his initial initial writing. He saw almost not like he. They said financially speaking, he didn't get much of that 153.7 million. He was paid a reasonable price in quotes for his initial script, but the success of the film to date garnered nothing in the way of a payout for him. And he's the guy that came up with the the original concept. So. I mean, th- think of that, man. One hundred and fifty-three point seven million. This made off of a twenty-six million dollar budget, and it's your idea. This just tells you, man, do everything yeah. you can to protect yourself. Yep, absolutely, man. You have to do it, and it's, you know, a lot of times you see this in in all facets of entertainment, like the band that signs a record contract where they're getting paid no money or the, you know, stuff like this, or, you know, the director that basically got a project ripped out of his hands and he was paid nothing for it. It's, there's that, you know, everybody is so desperate to get into these industries that they see you coming and they see you going, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that you need to be wary about no matter what you're doing, uh, because people will steal from you, uh, it's just, you know, whether they're stealing your ideas, they're stealing your music, they're stealing, you know, your actual work. Um, you know, don't even get me started on artists and stuff like that that get their work stolen all the time. I mean, it happens. It's a big part of what you Single-handedly deal with. Single-handedly kill the music in industry. industry. Yep. Yeah. Kill the music it's, industry. You know, like I know, and I know like artists and stuff that have created artwork only to see it ripped off and put on t-shirts that they didn't approve or get, get it ripped off and put on movie posters that it wasn't approved or album covers that it wasn't approved to be used on. And there's a lot of digital manipulation that goes along with a lot of that stuff that people use too. And it's just, it's ridiculous, but it's where we've come to with all this stuff, especially with the accessibility of professional equipment and the stuff that people use, now there's just even more outlets for people to go and steal from others in that regard, too. So, you know, it's all over the place, and it doesn't look like it's going to be slowing down anytime soon. Yeah, it says in the article, the sad irony of an exploitative business practice is that the more widespread it becomes, the less juicy a story about it seems. And you know how the media goes. And so by the time Barth was like kind of speaking up about this, most news outlets had long since moved on from the kooky non-Beatles Beatles movie, and he says that he didn't realize uh, Richard, that was one of the guys that bought the rights off of him, was going to do this to him until the week the film was released. Then all the publicity yep. hit all at once, and he could see that he was taking credit for everything. I mean, man, yep. would that just piss me off, dude. Like, But people will do that. Yep. And there's nothing you can do about it in the the time period because you know what I mean. Well, then it's, it's money. Like, like this, this other guy can has do the anything. Too. The damage is done. Yeah. So he said, I got lawyers to contact Richard's lawyers, and they just dragged it out. And that's what happens. And you can't yep. you can't beat them in court. You can't you don't have the the finances to to be able to fight it. Yeah, and even like I said too, like even if you do, it's like the damage has already been right. done. Yeah, it's you, like you, you said, you're that. never going to be able to recover it. Yeah. So. You know, but uh, also, too, I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was really cool. But uh, we talk about uh, the last drive in uh, with Joe Bob Briggs on Shutter on on here quite frequently. And uh, they had a really good episode this weekend. Uh, they showed The Exorcist 3. And the reason why I wanted to really bring it up is because the second movie they shown is a movie that's a favorite of both of ours. It's uh, from director Jim Van Beber, and it's called Deadbeat at Dawn, uh, which is, man, it's like a movie all in of itself it's basically an action movie uh made super low budget 
and uh, with a lot of love and affection. And it's uh, it's a hell of a movie. So if you guys, anybody of you out there who have Shudder uh, and aren't following along with Joe Bob every week, I highly recommend you catch up in general, but specifically this week, because Deadbeat at Dawn is one uh, that you can't miss. Yeah, we saw it. That's another one. Um, you and shout out to Runk, our buddy Runk, put me on um, when you guys first saw it. And we've since met Jim uh, Van Beber and Runk's had, yep. you know, Runk's, I think, still pretty good friends with them and things. And there was a pretty cool documentary, too, that, that has come out since called Diary of a Deadbeat. Uh, that some of our friends yep. are, are on because it was a lot of it was filmed at uh, the popular um, con that, that we have attended and attended for years. Ronk, uh, I've been a few times. Uh, Cinema Wasteland um, when Jim Van Bever yep. was a guest. So uh, yeah, check, I actually check watched that, that too. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a great actually, documentary. I watched that over the weekend. Just figured it'd be a good time to pull that out. Um, but that's a really cool documentary too. It's a great uh, Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, a lot of additional stuff on there too um but yeah i'm a big fan of van beber so obviously figured that would be be worth uh bringing up here more, on the show more inspirational and, stuff you know yeah absolutely man especially on a low budget level exactly uh, this guy's work is is really good he has a whole litany of short films that are worth checking out and he made a really good manson family movie um that i highly recommend as well um so check those out. You know, if you guys are looking for something to watch in the quarantine, uh, you know, those are some pretty solid recommendations right there. Deadbeat at dawn. Also, uh, wanted to bring this up too. I thought this is an interesting article because it it kind of correlates with what we've been saying for weeks now on the show about people uh, during the whole COVID nineteen experience, I guess. Uh, and the article is from. Uh, a website called Mel, M-E-L, magazine.com, and it's called America is Officially in Fuck-It Mode. Um, when doing the right thing is too hard, we give up and late, let fate run wild. And, uh, you know, not to go into the entire article, but I just thought it was interesting because it kind of said, uh, you know, the stuff that we've been saying a lot uh, on the show is, man, instead of just wearing a mask and trying to be a little bit you know, precautionary for people, it's just apparently easier for them to scream and yell and be difficult and cause problems for everybody else that's just trying to do things safely and as easily as possible. It's just an inherent human trait to want to rebel for a lot of people. And depending on the type of personality of said person, it could be a closed-minded, ignorant person that you're talking about. I mean, there's a myriad of, of different personalities that, that can go along in that. But I, I, you know, you just see it all too much now, and, and of, of course, always going back to this, the status of the popularity of so, social media, putting everything like this under a microscope. That has a lot yep. going into it too, because back, you know, if this is 1988. This is going on. There's so many of these people and stories that we wouldn't even be dealing with or in front of us, but because of said social media, everything's just in our face. You just constantly see. That's why I always said, man, I got a good filter for it like i still pop on social media and try to use it in, in the positive w- ways that i can as a tool and i'm pretty good at filtering that shit out and i'll just catch like in the corner of my eye some some people's tirades and arguments and stuff and i'm just like i gotta get the fuck away i gotta get the fuck away can't can't yeah. see this i'll go nuts um but yeah it's, yep. it's definitely an interesting article and it kind of nails it for for a lot of people and like we always say like you don't want to 
generalized. Like it's not everybody, but there's you know, there's just always that collection of people. Like I always say to you, hey Ed, all it takes is one asshole. You know, and, and nowadays there's there seems to be a lot of them. Yeah, and I'm trying to speak here from my experience with this, and we've talked about this many times off the air too. But like, whenever you go out, and I'm again, it's not everybody, but pretty much every time you go out to do something, right? You see at least one person doing something like extraordinarily stupid. And that's to me like what I'm talking about here. Like, I saw, like, I was out earlier today uh, just getting food, and it's like I got, you know, like those outside barbecue places, like they, like one of the things people have been doing around here because it's getting warmer and everything is a lot of restaurants and stuff are basically doing like a takeout barbecue place in their parking lot. Right. Where they'll have like a smoker or a grill and, you know, so like we were picking up food earlier today from a place like that and people just show up, no masks, don't, no regard for anything, which to me is just bizarre. Like, I'm like, everyone else is wearing shit, but like, here's the two special fucking people that, you know, don't care, don't, you know, whatever the case may be at this point. I mean, I'm not saying everybody should be walking around scared shitless all the time, but like, has that not been made perfectly clear to everybody at this point that like, when you're in public and you're around other people, you should probably be wearing a mask. It's about now, respect. If you're, in a, if, if you're in a park alone walking in the woods i don't give a shit if you wear a mask that's fine you're not around anyone else but if you're in an area where it's condensed with people and you know wear a fucking mask come on man it's about respect man simple just respect other people respect the elderly we're we're one big tribe when you break it down and and you said it so many weeks ago when we were talking about it it's like dealing with the kindergarten class with a lot of people like just put the mask on little june's like no, yeah. They're and like you know, sneezing you on tomatoes. That, you expect that from children, not right. from grown adults. That's the thing that kills me. Like, you know, I understand people are uncomfortable, and so am I. You know what I mean? Like, it's not fun wearing masks and shit when it's ninety degrees outside and you're doing stuff. Like, I understand that. I get it completely. It sucks, but it's better than the alternative, I guess, to me. Yeah, it's what you, you know, said. I mean, that's my opinion on this whole thing. It's better safe than sorry. Just wear the fucking mask until this is over. Is it that bad? I mean, I, I could see if you're like working in a, you know, like cutting down trees and you're up there in a tree by yourself. Like you said, there's there's scenarios where there's exceptions to the rule constantly. I get that. But like you said, at a specifically your scenario, hey, Ed, you're at a fucking open barbecue place, you know, where other people are coming up with food during this. Just wear a fucking mask. It's better safe than sorry. It's out of respect. And I'm sure. And I'm sure you've seen the videos just like I have of like the person going into a store refusing to wear one and causes like a big scene. And it's like, dude, don't like you know what I mean. Like here, here's my thought on that. Like you know that's gonna happen, right? Like if you decided you were gonna go down the street to the local grocery store and you weren't gonna wear a mask, do you think it you're just gonna go in and get your shit and get the fuck out and everybody's gonna leave you be and no one's gonna really say anything to you? Like, or do you think it's gonna be a problem? Somebody's gonna say something to you. so, So that shows me right there the purpose of all of these fucking videos in the first place. Like, you're doing it for attention. You're doing it to. It's no different to me than the person holding the phone filming a fist fight. 
like exactly you're, without doing you're, you're part of the problem here you know yeah. what i mean like you're not part of the solution or trying to help I mean, you can say it respectfully um, like how they react is up to them but you can just respectfully say like hey man you need to put a mask on please yeah it, nobody I, I highly doubt whenever somebody goes into a store and they're not wearing a mask that somebody runs out and they're like get a fucking mask on or i'm gonna shoot you where you're standing like that's not what's happening here so I, it's just weird that this is the shit that people equate to their freedoms and stuff at this point when it's clear that it's not just a regular Tuesday where they're making you wear face coverings. It's, I don't know. It just is what it is. But, you know, we could talk about that all day, but we got to pay some bills. Off the soapbox, we're gonna hey, a, <laughs> We're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to talk some Dark Side of the Ring, Owen Hart, as well as uh, another sad thing in, in the world of professional wrestling. But we're going to take a quick commercial break. Stick with us, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everyone. This is Jared from the What's Real Podcast, here to talk about ChurchillPictures.com. This newly revamped website is the home of the Pittsburgh-based production company, Churchill Pictures. It contains numerous original videos, including film trailers, documentaries, comedy sketches, and the entire library of the infamous Backyard Wrestling League, UCW. Check it out today. We are Churchill Pictures. Established from the bond of two childhood friends, we envision creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Churchill Pictures. Picture the possibilities. Hey, it's Jared from the What's Real Podcast. I'm here to talk about the independent feature film Deference by Churchill Pictures. Bruno DeMacy works for the most feared crime boss in the city while his best friend Polly Fusco gets himself in debt with an Irish gangster and needs his help. As Bruno attempts to rise in the ranks while running an underground gambling operation, Polly continues to work as a card hustler and becomes a marked man. The two find themselves in the middle of a street war between the Italians and the Irish. You can stream Deference today. Go to churchillpictures.com. Click the tab Featured. Go to the Deference page. It is available here to rent or own. Deference. When tradition fades away, order preserves respect. Churchillpictures.com. And we're back here on the show. Uh, Thanks for sticking around. And as I mentioned before we went to break, guys, we were going to do the season finale of Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, on Owen Hart and specifically the tragic in-ring death of Owen Hart. Um, Those of you unfamiliar, uh, Owen Hart was from the famed Hart Wrestling family. He was the youngest brother. He was also uh, probably the second most well-known brother to his brother, Brett the Hitman Hart, in the world of professional wrestling. And uh, he was tragically killed uh, in 1999, I believe it was. Yeah, May 23rd, 1999. May 23rd, 99, at the Over the Edge pay-per-view, where, unfortunately, a stunt gun wrong uh, made it so that Owen Hart essentially fell from the rafters of the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, to the ring where he, unfortunately, met his demise. Um, This happened during a live pay-per-view, and even though it wasn't captured on video, it it was they were showing video packages at the time it's still one of the most infamous uh wrestling pay-per-views of all time um this happened earlier in the night and uh, wwf chairman at the time vince mcmahon decided to continue the show 
Um, and we are not just speaking from watching Dark Side of the Ring, but this is a night where me and you were both in the same place watching this pay-per-view, and where we were both present during this whole occurrence, and it made for one of the strangest nights of watching wrestling uh, that both of us probably have ever had. Because even though this was right around the time that they were kind of lifting the, the curtain and Vince was starting to promote the whole sports entertainment aspect of pro wrestling that we've thoroughly covered in, in past podcasts. You know, pro wrestling always had that aura about it, as, as we've discussed. Ed and I both will use the example of, like, when you go see a magician, you know he's not a real-life wizard, that there's real magic, but you don't know exactly how he's doing what he's doing. That was kind of the whole premise of, of work pro wrestling matches you know even as kids like we always said we knew there was something to it we we knew it was fake but man it's like and and even today when you absolutely know it's fake there's times like even i can get caught 40 years old and i've done professional wrestling where i'm like dude i can't tell if he really got hurt or not you know as we say it's always a word and my point is is like at that time as kids watching it in gus's basement and you and i together with our buddies we still we're kind of thinking like, is this an angle, you know, at a certain yeah, point at first. at first, cause you just, it was just so weird because they didn't show the ring after the video packages that, that Ed just mentioned, it came back to just the announcers and they just had these worried looks on their faces, but you couldn't really tell what's going on. And then they would just show random shots of the crowd. And that's something that never occurred. So we started picking up on it, that this is a different situation. Well, you know what reminded me watching Dark Side of the Ring that um, I specifically remember from that night that was like one of the first telltale signs to me that something was really wrong. If you remember, uh, they're showing Jim Ross, and I believe Jerry Lawler was there at the time, and he's kind of explaining what's happening in this somber tone and everything. Uh, But you notice there's a fan right behind Jerry Lawler, and he's doing like the throat cut sign. Like, yo, uh, like, and shaking his head, no. Yeah. Kind of like, you know, like, once you saw that, you knew that something definitely happened that they weren't showing on television. And as Jim Ross is telling you, like, this is not part of a storyline or anything like that. Like That's when we knew. It, it, yeah, it was, and here's the thing. They didn't tell you, like, they told you there had been a serious accident with Owen Hart. Um, they didn't have any updates or anything like that. Um, but it looked really bad. Um, this is not part of the show. Like they said all that stuff. And then they actually would come back later in the show and go, ladies and gentlemen, Owen Hart has died, which they showed you on here. But like, I, I think we all pretty much knew, um, cause we knew what was happening. Like we knew, like, cause at the time he was doing the sting thing where he was, you know, coming down to the ring, like from the ceiling and shit like that. So like, we knew that there was probably some sort of a screw up with that or that he fell or something. And with the way the fans were reacting and everything else, I think we all knew it, it right away, like that he probably wasn't going to make it. Ugh, so brutal. And I, I know Kevin Dunn has taken a lot of stuff online since uh, this has aired. Uh, he's, for those that he don't probably know, should have. He's one of the WWE's big producers, and I guess you know Jim Ross was asking asking for an update, and in the microphone, you know, because they he's a producer, so he's in the back telling, you know, directing Jim Ross basically, and Jim Ross yeah, doesn't know what the fuck's ear. going on. He's in his ear, and he says, um, "Oh, Owen died. You're on a nine, eight, 
seven and just counts down for for jr just to to process that in eight seconds and deliver that information to a worldwide audience and i you know i'm with you head he probably does but i don't know that's something that for me personally i wouldn't touch with the 10 foot pole because who wants to be in that position you know and especially kevin you know we could get into the vince mcmahon decision down the road here too but you know kevin dunn's working for somebody he's doing what he's told i mean you can make a a moral stand or something like that but uh, again i wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole in that situation that's just a horrible situation for this entire crew to be in and and there were so many different aspects as always hey ed you could wrangle me in uh just kind of going off the top of my head that some some of the stuff that came that popped out of Initially for me within this episode, um, they had Jim Corderas on and Jim Corderas yeah. was the referee that was in the ring. And he tells a story how he felt this like kind of air next to him, like his like next to his ear, like this flash, like and, like this air came by him in this crash. Yep. And he didn't he's like, what the hell was that? Like, what's going on? And he turns and sees Owen laying there. Um, so we said it, about the rope, too. Yeah, he, the, he was the, holding the, the top exactly. rope and it just. It and just it went out of his hand. Out of his hand. So that and was that's a brutal. A, that's something account, that we, it's so detailed. We've experienced that too. Like we've been in a ring, and you know what I mean. Like we know what yeah, the, the cables ropes are, are like so and tight. Stuff. Yeah, that would literally just think about that. Think if you were standing back, like looking out at the crowd with your hand on the top rope, and something happened in the ring behind you. And it ripped the rope out of your hand. Like those yeah. ropes are crazy and they're dangerous and they could fuck you up really badly. So that's something that would basically give you a heart attack anyway, let alone what actually happened. Yeah, and then you realize it just slowly, like just taking it in. Like what what's going on? Owen's laying there. Oh my god! And um, you know that w- that was the other thing. Just as usual, just bringing it up in my head before I forget to mention it or we might miss it. One of the things. Um, that Owen was such the type of guy they had said that when he realized he was falling, you know, I bring that up now because I picture like Jim Corderas' account and Owen yep. yelled, watch out because he was worried about, worried like, about landing on somebody below. or something. Yeah. And that, oh, yep. I'm kind of tearing up now talking about it. Man. It's brutal. Yeah. It's awful. Um, and it's too, uh, the, another thing now, Shit. before we get into this whole part, uh, I just wanted to give this perspective. Now, going into this documentary, I was kind of the person. Now, I understand that the WWE had a hand in this, obviously. I didn't feel that it was completely their fault. Um, I also felt that Martha was kind of holding a grudge, not allowing Owen to get into the Hall of Fame. And I wish that she would kind of, you know, move past that so that he can be honored by the company. Um, that's kind of a perspective that Bret Hart, his brother, shared. And now I wanted to preface that by saying that's how I went into this feeling. I knew that the family had been paid a settlement. Um, I didn't know. I knew it was in the millions of dollars, but I didn't know the amount. Um, and that was that to me. Okay. So that was going into this. So now in the documentary, we're getting to the part where we're introduced to his wife, and for the first time ever, um, his children, which they're older now, of course, um, because that was, you know, 21 years ago that this happened. But um, that was an interesting perspective, uh, seeing all that. And the one thing 
that makes this one of the best episodes that they've ever done, in my opinion, is the whole part of where she shows the clip that he was, you know, held into. And the way that it was supposed to release, and they explain that yeah, she breaks thing, it down. how everything works. Yep. So it's pretty disturbing, and it's pretty sad, and it shouldn't have happened that way at all. Because I don't know if you heard, hey, Ed, like going with that on Xbox take on that. Okay. Sean Waltman. No, I didn't. He he had said that he he believes, or you know, I don't I don't know the validity of it. But Xbox not one to usually bullshit, especially nowadays. I guess it was something that he discussed on his podcast that with that clip that Martha was referencing, he thinks that like one of the boas, because Owen Hart's character, the Blue Blazer, like had all this stuff on him. He had like a cape and a mask, and so he has this this clip that basically, like she explained, the reason behind it was his release in previous times that he came down to the ring just wasn't looking right. He was like a little slow because he had to like release this clip and this clip, he could just like kind of flick and it would just like shave, like release one, one, two a seconds full release and fully release him. And he could just make a smoother entrance. That was the whole idea behind it. Cause Martha even says like, he basically lost, lost his life over them trying to shave two seconds off his entrance. But X-Pac was saying that his like the feathers he would have these feathers around him on his costume were kind of like f- fucking with him he's fucking with those and hit the clip and released it oh, because like she said okay. it was so easy to do so him fucking with those things like he fucked with it and just released it and just went that that was his take at least and I, I had just seen that recently so I wanted to mention that yeah, at this I, part that's I could see that being very possible um, the thing is too with me is. I just think it was a stupid risk that should have never been taken. Um, they should have continued to do it the way that they've been doing it, the way that uh, clearly worked. Um, I believe Martha, what she said about the person that rigged the whole thing, was not properly experienced. Yeah. And obviously shouldn't have been the person to rig him up in the, the harness and stuff in the first place. But, you know, it, it's... I just thought that it was pointless, and it was sad, and it was a stupid risk that didn't need to be taken. Because if, especially too, from our perspective of it, it was like a mid-card comedy gimmick. It didn't really matter exactly that they were doing if, this if whole he's thing. coming like, out of the It was really ceiling. pointless. Yeah, yeah, it, it was stupid to begin with, and it's like they kind of alluded to it a little bit in in Dark Side of the Ring, but like they were doing it as a way to kind of like mock WCW at the time. Yeah, it was staying, yeah. and and they were. That's exactly what that was. That's that's the way we felt at the time. I remember. That's the way at least I felt at the time. It was just like, okay, just because that's something that both companies did at the time, even though it was kind of pointless. Um, but, you know, and it makes the whole situation even dumber, to be honest with you. Yeah, and Jim Cornette really, you know, takes that home, pounds that, just how stupid the whole thing was and pointless because uh, he, he was a former manager of Owen Hart's and thought the world of him. And he just thinks that this was just such nonsensical bullshit that should have never happened. And and that's that's one thing too that they allude to in this. And I don't know if it was like you know, the kind of storytelling things for, for the doc and things like that, but they depict 
the days leading up to the pay-per-view is kind of ominous. And they, they talk about how Owen, I mean, Martha, Martha talks about it too. So I'm assuming it's pretty accurate that he just was not comfortable doing this. and was scared about something. And they kind of interpreted that with him in this blue blazer gimmick and these cable stunts in this descent that he was obviously just not a fan of it and was fearing something could go wrong, but that the usual thing for WWF wrestlers, they feel like they can't do much because their position will be hurt because Vince will be like, okay, fine. You don't want to do that. Well, then we're going to take you off TV for a little bit. Who knows if creative can find another thing for you. But that was kind of a a picture they painted where it was like, you know, kind of this ominous buildup to this accident. From, from Owen just being kind of scared and uncomfortable this whole time with this descending stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you could tell, and I, this is the way that I got it from the jump, and they clear it up too in this documentary, is Owen was over it. Like, Brett has always been portrayed as this guy who always cared about everything that he did, and like he was, he was careful with his image. He was careful about the way he was portrayed. He cared about his match finishes and the titles that he won and things like that. And Owen was not like that. Owen essentially had enough of the wrestling business up to this point, and was just kind of biding his time and collecting his money uh, so he could retire and spend time with his family. And I think that that's also part of a lot of what was going on at the time, where they had him in this stupid gimmick, and you know. He was over it. He realized that he was probably never going to get back to the main eventer uh, that he once was uh, because of the company, not because of himself. Um, and he didn't want to go anywhere else. There really wasn't anywhere else to go work that he was interested in. He wasn't interested in going back to Japan or places like that where he'd have to be away from his family even more. And just was doing what he needed to do to get through his contract because he really didn't want to be there anymore and was over it. And at that point, Brett had gone to WCW recently, so I'm sure he, you know, depending on where he was at in his contract, I'm sure that was in his mind too that he had uh, an alternative place that he can go where he might be able to to do more or you know just have a better pro- job as a pro- pro- professional wrestler as opposed to his current state in the WWE at that point. Well, see, I think that's that's the part that came into play too. Is keep in mind that he was resigned shortly after the screw job okay um that's what i thought and it was for and and it was for a lot more money because they knew that they couldn't lose him too on top of the other guys and you know just the company wasn't in a good spot yet um so they needed him and it's very possible that owen would have left once his contract uh expired but at the same time i think there's a possibility of brett telling him you don't want to come to wcw like you, you don't like what's going on up there. You're really gonna hate it down here, right? And they're not gonna do anything with you, and it's gonna be a mess. And you're not gonna get the money that you deserve. And because at that time, by '99, WCW, like the money train had kind of passed, and guys weren't getting the huge deals. They were getting good deals, but they weren't getting like those '97, '98 deals from WCW anymore. Speaking of that, that's one great thing that that Chris Jericho says in this. He's like, it's, it's such a heartbreaking thing on top of all of this that he, he was kind of lost in the, the kind of character shuffle Owen Hart, and he's doing the, the blue uh, blazer gimmick. And he's like, when he died, he was just one year, one year from 
Eddie Guerrero coming to the WWF, Chris Jericho yeah, yeah. being prominent in the WWF, Kurt Angle. He's like, can you? He would have had a career resurgence. You know and what? That's though? a shame to I don't think know. about. Uh, in theory, I think it's a good theory, and it's possible. Yeah, I mean, but who I'm knows? Being, you know what the the first thing I thought of though uh, when I saw that is that doesn't mean anything because it's like look how long it took for a lot of those guys to get their you know settled. Like Benoit was fine once he first came in, but like remember Eddie went through like that two year, three year period of just being injured, fucked up, suspended, stuff like that. Jericho was fine, but like he remember yeah, when except Jericho for a hypothetical. Came in, Jericho was like weird for like like he came in huge and then faded off. He faltered for like yeah. a year before they build him back up again. So I don't know if that would have been the case. I mean, in theory, yeah, it looks good on paper and it sounds good and why not? But doesn't well, mean that it would have happened either because they've been very guilty of screwing up stuff that was a home run a lot. Uh, for sure. Because there, there was a story that Edge um, told uh, in the wake of this that I had read. And he had worked a match on pay-per-view not too um, far bef- before this incident. And he said that they had a pretty decent match and Owen came back like, that was great, man. I finally got to do some wrestling tonight. You know, so just going in with yep. all that. Yeah, and that's kind of kind of sad, but you know, it just shows you that you know, whenever you get wrapped up in that mid card thing, whenever you're used to being on top, like Owen was for a while there, um, it's probably a little disheartening to go from you know having twenty minute matches with really good people to just mid-card filler eight-minute matches and stuff like that and you know we've talked about that on the show before and i know we've talked about it before a lot of pro wrestlers hate the grind and they're like you know everything you have to do as a wrestler sucks except for when you get in the ring and so the best part of your day is an eight-minute mid-card thing it kind of makes you not want to do any of it anymore i would think yeah like you're gonna go and get chokeslammed by taker in 36 seconds tonight it's like yeah, great. Like this is, I'm I'm glad I flew 560 miles today just to yeah. come here and do this. Went to the gym, rushed here, ate kale, and I'm just yeah, getting choked. Slammed. Get a <laughs> good job, the fuck out, and get paid 1,200 bucks for it. And it's um, just weird. I was gonna bring up uh, just so I don't lose it. Another big point, obviously, is is Vince McMahon and how he was portrayed in this and. I don't know. I'm. I'm not. Uh, again, you know me yet. I'm not one to, to judge people. And, and Vince McMahon, in my even just my feelings alone, as like a fan and lifelong wrestling guy and all that, are, are very uh, all over the place. I mean, it, it's it's very complex. Let's just say that. And w- with this, it, it kind of goes into the same thing. I mean, I could easily just say like, what a what a piece of shit. But I know even with something like this, there's two sides to every story. I mean, I don't think he murdered the man, obviously. So um, I think it truly was an accident. But there are aspects of, of gross negligence, um, you know, like Martha Hart said, and you already already have alluded to, Hey Ed, with the company that was hired. And that, that was one thing with the documentary because you know how the Ben Wallen was two parts. I think yep. this kind of maybe needed that because one of my negatives Me on too. this, other than the, the obvious – how depressing it, it is to relive this is that um, I felt there was just a lot. It, it was just another dark side of the ring where there was a lot more questions than answers at the end. And yeah. and I get why that can happen, but it, it seemed there are certain points where it seemed like they were going to go in more depth with Martha and stuff. And then it would just stop. 
And they, they showed that one yeah. quick clip of Vince at that press conference where, of course, he gets kind of nasty with a lady, which who that reminds you of, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And he's like, you, I don't like I don't like your tone. <laughs> it's, it's yep. you know, so that, that, that was kind of like the, the negative I took from it, though, that they, they kind of glossed over some stuff. Yeah, I felt the same way, um, and I also thought, too, that if any of them deserved the two-parter, that it would have been this one. I think they could have covered the Benoit stuff in one. Yeah, for sure. Um, compared to this, anyway. Um, you know, the negatives, I'd agree with you. Uh, that That's kind of exactly what I was going to say. Um, the positives to me, though, are that they got to talk to Owen's kids. Yeah, um, that was the big thing for me, uh, and the the stuff with Martha with the clip and everything because I felt that that was a really good way of explaining everything that a lot of people haven't really seen that aspect of it. Um, I remember reading a lot of stuff uh, about this during the trial and everything, whenever they were about to go to trial, um, and a lot of that that information came out for the first time. Um, but you know, I I kind of do blame Vince in this one. I mean, I don't feel like Vince killed him. I'm not going to say that. Um, but I think it is uh, a lot of negligence on the WWF's part on this this uh, death. Um, they did pay out $13 million to Martha and her family for this. Um, you know, not to put a dollar figure on somebody's life, but, you know, I'm glad that Martha and the family was able to get something for Financially, it. Financially, yeah. Yeah, they, they deserve that 100%. Um, and I, you know, I, I see fully Martha's decision why she doesn't want Owen put into the WWE Hall of Fame. And I kind of agree with her. Uh, if that's the way that her and the kids feel about it, then I'm on their side with it. I have no problem with it because at the end of the day, the Hall of Fame is just a vanity thing for fans. And, uh, it's not going to make me forget about Owen Hart anytime soon. Um, the dude was always a really good professional wrestler, and I always enjoyed his matches, especially loved his feud with Bret Hart um, in, like, 94, 95. That was really great stuff. It was some oh, of the yeah. best stuff going on in wrestling at the time. Um, so I'll always look back fondly on Owen Hart's career. Um, it's a shame that it uh, that his career and his life ended this way. Um but that's pretty much all I'll say for it. It was a solid episode of Dark Side of the Ring. I do think that there could have been more. Um, but I do think that it was a good one. I wasn't uh, disappointed in this one, kind of the way that I felt about the Road Warriors was, one. I'll say that much. It was very, very emotional and, and well done overall. Um, just just to end it, so we'll end it with a pretty hot topic, and we'll get each other's opinions because this was a big one that came back, and people have – you know, kind of talked about it online, disputed it. What do you think about, and it ultimately, of course, goes back to Vince McMahon, the decision to keep the show going. I'll tell you my perspective first. I remember when we were younger, kind of understanding the whole, as Vince McMahon was quoted as saying, the show must go on. Being older and reliving this, I feel like there's no way in hell they should have kept on with the show. Now, now knowing, having the knowledge about police investigations and Martha specifically brings that up and things like that, they should have emptied the arena. It, it became a crime scene. Like she said that, yeah. it, it really was. And so that was my take. I kind of reversed my initial thoughts as a kid that like I understood why they kept the show going to, man, they should have stopped it. That's where I'm at with it. Dude, I agree 110%. That's exactly what I was going to say. I used to feel differently about it. I feel different about it now. I don't think 
that they should have kept the show going. There's no reason for that. And not just because of the the whole um, crime scene aspect. I mean, that's obviously an important aspect of it. But even that aside, um, it's just a bad look. Remember us really watching shitty it? To make. None of us were in it a good was terrible. mood. The, like, the Neither, Jeff you Jarrett could tell match the right after. Yeah, I was saying, was Jeff Jarrett tears. was right after him. He was crying. That was brutal. They should have never did that. Yep. Like, the fans it's, there are, like, all weirded out, obviously. And, dude, uh, imagine this. Imagine you work somewhere, and you come to work and find out that your coworker is dead. Um, it, which, by the way, is a situation that I've had happen to me. Um, and we were expected to work out the rest of our day. Exactly. And it was terrible. They oh, should you were, have you were expected to work home. out? Yeah, yeah they, they made us stay. Oh, they, they called, we had a meeting first thing in the morning. They told us what happened, and then they proceeded to tell us that we were going to remain open for the remainder of the day and operate just as business as usual. And everybody was pissed off. People were offended. It it was it really fucked up the morale of the place that I worked in to the point where they had to literally bring in a morale counselor eventually because so many people were pissed off about that at our boss yeah, over making everybody stay there. That's garbage. It's bullshit. I would never do that to people. Just like I feel like it's garbage and it's bullshit that Vince did that to its roster. They should have been expected to, you know, go on about their day and you know. Probably not expect to come back to work for at least a few days. They could have canceled a few events after that, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you know, and then they went on the next night and did the Owen Hart Memorial Tribute Raw, which is again one of the worst experiences I've ever had watching wrestling because it was absolutely heartbreaking of just two hours of guys crying and people that looked super uncomfortable with being on television in a horribly vulnerable state. But again. That's wrestling. And goes back to Vince, man. Got to take in the accolades and get the criticism. But, you know, when you're the one making all the calls and he made those calls, I wholeheartedly disagree. You know, especially, again, being older and wiser and reliving that, that they, they should have stopped it right there and then. Yep. I can't say that any better myself. So that was a dark side of the ring, Owen Hart. And that was the season finale. Um, and next week, by the way, just to let you guys know, because it's probably going to be in this segment here, uh, we're going to be talking about a documentary that premiered this past week. It's called A Man in His Shoes. It's all about the rise of the Jordan sneaker and some of the uh, downfalls and repercussions of it becoming such a huge pop cultural uh, iconic thing. So that's going to be on the show next week, so stay tuned for that. Um, But before we go take a break, we do have another thing that we wanted to bring up here on the show that was another really sad moment. Um, And we announced last week on the show that Shad Gaspar had been missing after a incident swimming with his son out in California. Well, unfortunately, uh, he was found, and he was not found alive. So Shad Gaspard, uh, rest in peace. 
um, made sure that his son, his 10-year-old son, was uh, rescued by lifeguards. So he's an absolute hero for doing something like that for his own son. But, um, you know, it's a really sad situation, and the wrestling world has been very vocal about how uh, decent of a human being that he is. So from all of us here at the What's Real podcast, we want to send our condolences to the friends and family of Shad Gaspard. For sure, man. I, I mentioned last week I knew Shad very a, a little bit. Um, I just had a, a tryout back in the day with him, spent a week with him, and he was a good guy to me and didn't know him well or anything like that, but just to experience somebody um, and, and then this happens. It's, it's just such a tragedy. And Last week we were just hoping for the best. It didn't look good, but you just never know. And I, I had mentioned that you had a, a thing popped up on on Twitter, specifically tweeted by MVP that was a really close friend of Chad's, uh, the wrestler MVP. And uh, he reposted uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had said he was on a bike ride and stopped to pay his respects to Chad Gaspard because Schwarzenegger has a lot of tie-ins with wrestling and has done stuff with WWF. So I'm sure he met him and, and knew him a little bit. And he said he was a hero in bodybuilding, a hero in wrestling. And the moment he told lifeguards to save his son first, the ultimate hero. And he said his thoughts were with his family. So mine are as well, man, to his, to his wife and son and his family and friends uh, from Jared at the What's Real podcast. Uh, rest in peace and you know, be an angel to your family. Horrible, horrible news. Absolutely. So we'll be back, ladies and gentlemen, right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey guys, this is Jared with the What's Real podcast. I'm here to talk about the Unsung movie from Churchill Pictures. The Unsung is a brand new independent feature film from Churchill Pictures in association with Cut and Run Productions that is currently on the festival circuit and will be streaming and available on DVD and Blu-ray in 2020. You can check it out at www.theunsungmovie.com. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest. When a young girl is in danger, Eric runs her aid and saves her from harm. She leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Through newspapers and a radio, Eric learns about a series of murders taking place in town. Inspired by the comic books he reads, Eric creates an alter ego and attempts to get involved with the investigation. Hope lives in the shadows. Check out and follow the progress of the unsung movie through churchillpictures.com and theunsungmovie.com. And we're back here on the show. And uh, next up for us this week is the very first uh, edition of the Sunday Night 30 for 30, I guess, after uh, the success of The Last Dance. And this week they had part one of Lance Armstrong, or it's just called Lance, but it's about Lance Armstrong. And uh, I was never a big cycling fan. I don't think you were either, but obviously we remember the time period where Lance Armstrong was becoming this huge deal because he was winning the Tour de France every year. And at the time in in professional sports, uh, PEDs were starting to become a major issue. And I mean all across the board in every sport. So it was no surprise when it came out that Lance Armstrong was also uh, using performance-enhancing drugs. Now, we all remember that there was sort of a backlash for this, and we saw a lot of back and forth with his career. And I was very interested to see how he was going to come off in this documentary. Um, 
they make it pretty clear from the jump that this is not going to be your typical fluff piece on Lance Armstrong and, you know, where they don't address any of that stuff or they try and, you know, make him look like he he was something that he wasn't. So that was kind of refreshing to me right off the bat. There was a great, great opening when he tells a story about the initial backlash that he was expecting when everything broke and he admitted to the steroid use and he was just waiting for this backlash. And, and he mentions that he waits a couple days. It doesn't come. He waits a couple weeks. It doesn't come. He says he's at this, this restaurant and this dude says, fuck you. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then like six other people in this guy's dinner party says, fuck you, you cheater. Fuck you. And it's Lance Armstrong on ESPN saying fuck like a million times, which this is just the beginning. So this is what's sucking me in off the bat. Cause like you said, it's just showing you, it's not going to be a fluff piece. And then he goes on to say how he, he needed to realize how to handle it because his friend's like, okay, let's let's just get the fuck out of here. And he's like, that's just not me and my personality to just, just let something like that happen. These people just saying, fuck you to my face no matter what I did. So he says he's thinking, he's thinking. He calls into the restaurant, tells him it's Lance. He gives him his credit card information and he says, whatever they want, whatever's on their tab, put everything on my credit card. I just need you to do one thing. Go back to that table and say Lance took care of everything and would he like wish them uh, his love or something like that. He's like, make, say, make sure you say, I, I, you know, Jared's paraphrasing as always, but you know, wish him, wish him my love or something like that. And that just started the whole thing. And I was, I was kind of into it from there because this was another one he had, which like you mentioned, I was never into cycling. I, of course, knew of Lance Armstrong from – uh, being a sports pop culture guy and everything, but I didn't know too many details. And that's what makes things like this interesting for me as much as like the pro wrestling documentaries of something that I've been obsessive with over the years are cool because that's just my world. And I love seeing those. It's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum. Like this, I get out of it because I don't know much about, and I never knew how big of an asshole Lance Armstrong was. And we'll get into that. Yeah. That's that's kind of the lesson number one here. Um, they do show him earlier in his career and how he essentially couldn't get past a certain level. He just couldn't do it. Uh, there was always someone or multiple people better than him, and he wasn't very successful. I mean, he was a good cyclist. They all say that. Like, he was able to get on the teams and stuff like that, but he could never reach the pinnacle. Um, and then you start to realize very quickly just how dirty the entire world of cycling is because there were people on this documentary, specifically one guy, I don't remember his name, but he said that he was on the teams and uh, he knew he was never going to be in like the Tour de France. Uh, he was on the team and he was fine with, he knew what his role was on the team. And he basically says, and I knew I was never going to even be able to be in the Tour de France because I, I refused to go. Or He's like, I was not a doper. Yeah. I would not. I, I would not take the stuff. Yeah, you gotta. I should start saying it. Like, yeah, sorry, actually. I didn't mean to cut you off with that. No, I should actually. You're right, <laughs> but uh, but the thing is, the guy even says that, and and the only reason he got in the Tour de France to begin with is because there's a notorious year where they said a team just. Guys were dropping like flies. Guys were getting hurt. Guys were getting taken out left and right, and they couldn't race, and they were the team was short. So he's like, here I am in the Tour de France, and I knew that I had no chance of doing anything because I wasn't doping, and I knew what I was up against. 
and clearly that the reason why I bring that up specifically is because that's something that I think Lance Armstrong had come to realize where he was like, I'm not going to be able to reach any pinnacle or even make a career out of this unless I'm on the, the, you know, this, the level playing field as everybody else in this game. Um, and then he decided that he was going to start taking stuff and he started to win like a motherfucker. He would win <laughs> everything. And I mean, not just win, he would beat world records. Dominate. Yeah, just destroy the field. And he was even kind of like, you know, like I might, I was expecting it to help me, but I wasn't like, I like he was even kind of surprised whenever he was like, I wasn't expecting this. Like it was a little bit much. And that dude you were talking about, he said, he's like, you came to realize that, uh, again, with the philosophers that we referenced, the great philosopher Stone Cold Steve Austin, they come to Jesus meeting. They come to Jesus meeting was like, you either are going to get on that something or you're going to go have a normal life. You're going back to university. That's what he yep. was saying. That's what those guys yep. are looking at. I mean, that's the bottom line. And this is such a double-edged sword. And that's an underlying theme to this whole documentary is the PED steroid use factor. And for somebody that – you know me, hey, Ed. I'm a lifelong athlete, proud of my athletic accomplishments, never did anything pro, but played all the way to college – things like that. And I have experimented with numerous things and we won't sidetrack, but one of the few things I never did was steroids. And I'm a lifelong like lifter, pro wrestler, gym guy, you know, but that's just one thing I never did. However, it's very muddy waters for me because there's certain aspects to it where I'm like, dude, it's your body and it's making you better because that's, that's not directly winning him those races. Yeah. It's helping him, but it's correlating with his drive and everything. Then the other end, for my opinion, hey, Ed, is the fact that that's where the cheating aspect comes in because not everybody's doing it. That, that's why we joke with like the UFC, for example, and say they, they should just have like a fucking steroid league. And it's like, man, if you yep. guys are willing to take the risk, just have all the juiced up guys be in this one. you know. So that's, that's the aspect that I disagree with because it's like for those guys in this sport that aren't going to do it and you're doing it. But it's like, other than that, it's one of those things. You're doing it to your own body. You're taking the risk, you know? So it, it's it's definitely a slippery slope for me with, with the whole PEDs, especially in cycling, like like you had said. All these these injuries and, like, dude, the one guy described it so well in this. It, like, pictured me making a movie on, on cycling, and I never gave a fuck about cycling. He just explained it so good. He's like, we're on these little things. We're basically naked. We're going almost 100 miles an hour, moving like a, an amoeba, but that's all individual. Like, if, you know, you saw that aerial shot where they just look yep. like one big snake. It's like, dude, those yep. are all dudes going like almost 100 miles an hour on fucking little ass bikes. Like, it's it's a, weird it, terrain. They're not like crazy. on a circular track either, just racing each other. They're going, they're going downhill and shit. And exactly. And, and the one yep. dude said, you're guaranteed an accident. And you're just hoping it's yeah. not going to be you. Who's going to be involved in, in this race's accident? Well, see, and I think that's a big part of it, too. And I think that's one of the things people miss uh, a lot of the time when they're talking about sports and steroids and, and performance-enhancing drugs. It's not that the, the steroids or the drugs make you better. They don't make you a faster cyclist. They don't make you hit a baseball further. But they it's recovery make it so and stuff. That, 
Yes, it's muscle recovery and lack of injury, thus making you, you know, you don't hit the fucking ball further, but you become stronger, which helps you hit the ball further. Or you don't become a faster cyclist, you just don't get injured as much, therefore you have a lot more time to work on it and improve your times. So, it's a weird thing, but, and I'm kind of on the ledge with it too, because I don't, I, I think a lot of team sports are the ones that, you know, you can't have that because you could deal right, with injuries, especially yeah, in exactly. Yep. Um, but, like, pro wrestling, eh, you know. That's dude I mean, bodybuilding. It's known, you know, because they're, it, they're just yeah, individuals. There's clean and competitions and there's ones that aren't. Yep, exactly. You know, like, you'll see that a lot of times with a guy where he'll be like, you know, or you'll see, like, a power lifter who it's, like, the world's strongest clean power lifter or something because they, you know, there's a lot of competitions and stuff around the world where they're not clean and they don't claim to be clean. You know, same thing for, like, the That's Mr. the biggest thing. things and shit. Those guys are not clean. They're not supposed yeah. to be clean. As long as you're straight up about it. And that's that's the problem. And I divulge because I was like, dude, you know, you talked to me in my 20s. I was fucking hated steroids but i don't know you get older and i guess it's more or less the the two sides to every story thing and like to your point the the recovery process and and these guys getting banged up but i feel like um you hit the nail on the head like that's the problem is these team sports some guys can't you know be clean and other guys not clean that's that's what throws them off obviously and I mean, I see the area where the motivation is for people. Because think about it this way. Say you play at a decent college and you're a linebacker. And you're a good one, right? And you might get drafted. We're talking like a third-round draft pick here or something, right? Or fourth or fifth, whatever. But you realize pretty quickly that if you get on something, you're good enough to be you know, like a Pro Bowl linebacker or something. Which means you might end up making millions of dollars from doing that. So then you really think to, to yourself that it might be worth it because you're like, you know what I mean? Like imagine yeah. what would you do R- if, I reward, you 20, if I offered you $25 million right now, like I'm telling you the myriad of things that you would be willing to do would probably be insane. And I'm saying the same for myself and the things yep. I would do no, for, for sure. kind of money are way crazier than do steroids. Like, like the dude said in this. I could be a millionaire cyclist on Lance Armstrong's race team, or I could go to university and be yep. a air quote normal normal student. Yep, I'm, I, no if I'm him. I'm, I'm P P Ding it up. Why not? It's gonna make a, it's it's in your vested interest to do that. You know what I mean? Especially for the the potential earning factors that it could have in your life. Like it's common sense why anybody would do something like that, but. You know, anyway, back to more so here to the documentary. The one thing that I didn't know here. Now, I knew Lance Armstrong was kind of an asshole. I just didn't know how much of an asshole this First guy was. First thing I thought, and, dude. I'm like, holy and, shit, this dude's an asshole. <laughs> and, and you know what the funny thing is? It's like, if you thought that this whole controversy and everything was something that was going to, like, humble him and change him as a person, you're dead ass wrong because he still seems like an asshole to me. Oh, when he was talking about the um, – one of the first things they were saying was the lawsuit against the Postal because that was, I guess, his biggest sponsor oh, yeah. is government. Yep. And and I get it. Like what, what comes with that, with everything we were talking about with the PED use, he, he, he lied 
and I get that, of course. you know, because because we spoke about that before. Hey, Ed, like, and I'm sure we'll be getting into this down the road with the um, the Sosa and McGuire stuff. But um, when when that was all going on in baseball, Jason Giamba was one of the first ones that was like, "Yeah, I, I roided," and you like it, it just like was like, "Okay," like he was just passed through, <laughs> and and, yeah. and I get that aspect, and that's not what Lance Armstrong did. He he, he lied, and you know, perjury is a big thing, especially on that scale. But yeah, like he was pretty cocky talking about the lawsuit. And, um, you know, I guess he was getting sued for a hundred million dollars and ended up settling to just pay out what five five million or ten million or something like yeah, that. Yeah, five million. Yep. I mean, a, a fraction of, of what he was looking at. Because I, I think he even yeah. said, um, you know, he was looking at the uh, nuclear result was owing a hundred million that he didn't have. And, you know, the one thing that I will say that I was disappointed in, now I'm not going to go nuts about it because there's still a part two that, that we're going to watch, but I was disappointed in the the coverage of the Live Strong Foundation because that, to me, was the biggest thing. During yeah, the, is, the cancer is, shit gets thrown in. Yeah, they're like, you know, he's running this Live Strong campaign, which is like this thing to help people, but he's doing most of it off of a lie. And yeah, that's like if you I guys agree. remember, everybody used to wear the Live Strong armbands that you. Could I had, I had that shit. Yeah, I had shoes, and, and a lot of bands. people did, you know. And it's it's just one of those things that, that was perpetuated and built off a lie. So that's where you kind of get into tricky territory with that. So hopefully, in part two, they cover a little bit of that because I was hoping it was going to get mentioned here, uh, and it didn't. Uh, but the one thing that they did mention that I thought was was good um, was the whole cancer thing. And the reason why I say it was good is because he even says himself he does not know if he gave himself cancer, and he wouldn't rule it out, yeah. which is mind-boggling to me to think about that you're fucking with your body chemistry so much that you may have accidentally given yourself cancer. Crazy. Because like he said, he was literally, because we do here on the podcast, uh, use the word literally wrong in certain aspects because you don't need to add it, but th- this is when you do. He like literally was like the fittest man in the world. At that point, I mean, he's winning mm-hmm. the most grueling bike races ever and ended up with cancer. And, and, and as we know, like cancer and strokes and different things, they, they can't happen out of, out of nowhere to anybody. Uh, you know, there's a 16 year old Olympic swimmers that can have a stroke for a myriad of different chemistry reasons and, and biology and genetics and things like that. So there's there's a lot to that. But that that was a crazy, crazy thing they brought up that if he his his abuse was the thing that gave him cancer because that's something i never thought of that perspective yeah and uh i will say this though man overall i thought this was pretty good um but there was some time periods in this where it was just dragging along to me especially towards the end and i'm like wow did they really need to squeeze two weeks out of this one you know to do a part two I get it. I'm not, you know, I'm going to wait until I see the whole thing, but I'll, I'll admit that that's one thing that I thought there was a few moments here uh, after about the hour, hour and 15 minute mark where I, a, a few moments where I'm like, this is just tra- They're just dragging this out. Um, so I could have did without that, but otherwise I thought it was pretty solid. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing part two and how it, uh, you know, they, they kind of finish telling the story um but admittedly part one didn't make lance armstrong look good which i was kind of relieved by because i was going to be pissed off if this was just kind of a fluff piece which it is not um 
had a lot of information I wasn't really privy to to begin with, and kind of showed me uh, a few perspectives on Lance Armstrong that I wasn't too familiar with as well. So I like it for that. Uh, I, I don't like this anywhere near as much as I liked uh you know, the last dance, but that's come to be expected for me. And I'm, I'm also really looking forward more so to the, the Sosa and McGuire episode and, uh, the Bruce Lee episode way more than I am with this. And I was kind of disappointed. This is what they started the season on. Well, I I think we we said when we heard the announcement though, you get the, the most least interested for us one out of the way first. And then we're on to the, the, the meat and potatoes, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm with you. Like, like you just said, I'm, pretty much on board dude the, the biggest thing about it was just how little i really did know in detail about all this so it was heavily interesting to me but it was it was nothing that like blew me away or was anything in comparison to some of my favorite 30 for 30s but uh but yeah i mean still still interesting and cool and i'm, I'm still looking forward to, to watching the finale the second one and uh wrapping it up so we'll check it out hey, man Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, it is time for Thursday Night Prime, and that's 1995's Night of the Running Man. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Bayview Entertainment, LLC, is a full-service media company committed to acquire, develop, produce, market, and distribute audiovisual content. For over 15 years, Bayview made its name by being dedicated to releasing only the best programs in each category from some of the most trusted names in the field. Bayview's disc programming can be found throughout the country at all online suppliers plus fine brick-and-mortar retailers, as well as streaming video on demand at all major digital retailers and platforms. Bayview is honored to partner with Churchill Pictures LLC for the worldwide release of The Unsung the newest feature film from Churchill Pictures. Follow details about The Unsung's upcoming release at churchillpictures.com and bayviewentertainment.com. And we're back here on the podcast, guys. Thanks for sticking it out with us. It is time once again for another Thursday Night Prime. This week, we're going to take a look at the film from 1995, directed by uh, noted exploitation director Mark L. Lester, and that is Night of the Running Man. Night of the Running Man is the story of a Vegas cab driver played by Andrew McCarthy, and he finds a million dollars of stolen money in his cab after a guy that jumped into his cab is murdered. Soon after, a ruthless hitman, played by Scott Glenn, is in pursuit, and he will stop at nothing to recover the money and dispose of all the witnesses. This one we picked because uh, it's just a movie we both really uh, remembered it, it really stuck out to us in the years of Thursday Night Prime, and I know it was a favorite of ours. And uh, I wanted to look up some info on the movie before I watched it, just to have a frame of reference. And I was uh, already surprised that Mark L. Lester was the director. Now I'm familiar with this guy because he's made a lot of movies that I really, really like. Um, I actually just watched Class of 1984 the week before, which is something that he made. Uh, he also directed Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a favorite of both of ours. Uh, Class of 1999 is really good. Another one that he did, a follow-up to Class of 1984. He did Roller, Berg- Roller Boogie with Linda Blair, which is a favorite of mine. Armed and Dangerous with John Candy, which is another really good movie. Yeah, I forgot he did Uh, Armored Dangerous. Truck Stop Women, which is another really good exploitation movie. And another movie that you probably will see on this segment in the future is a movie from 1993 with Lou Diamond Phillips 
called Extreme Justice, which is another famed uh, Thursday Night Prime movie. I'm yeah, not that's sure a that contender for us. You. Yeah, uh, oh yeah. But yeah, I was really excited to watch this movie again. Uh, for those, you know, me and Jared were both pretty excited whenever uh, we decided we were going to do this one. And, uh, you know, I got to say, man, I uh, I don't know what we were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those ones that It'll, it doesn't hold up as well. No, and it's for a whole myriad of reasons here. Now, I will say this. Scott Glenn is really good as the hitman. He's pretty fucking funny, and Scott Glenn's a really good actor, so he could pull almost anything off. So I, I don't have any issues, really, with Scott Glenn in this movie. Now, I wish I could say the same thing for Andrew McCarthy, because obviously I remember McCarthy starring in this movie, uh, you know, from years before. Um, but what I didn't remember is how he completely mails in his performance in this movie. <laughs> I mean, he really shows that he does not give a shit about the material or anything that they're doing here. He just wanted to grow a horrific goatee and call it, call it a day after that. Like I got the goatee, man. I'm just going to get the paycheck on this. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of aspects to it that are still, entertaining and, and, and we'll run through some of them. Um, I think a big aspect for me kind of turning me off, like we had discussed, Hey Ed, was the fact that the Thursday night prime segment and the films that we've been, re- been reviewing here on what's real, even the, the worst ones have the, the hokiness or the over the topness that this one's missing. You know, I, I yeah. still think there's people out there that we might be, you know, maybe giving them motivation to check out um, Night of the Running Man. They might be like, well, that, dude, that was a, that was actually a pretty good movie. But I think for the Thursday Night Primers, it's missing the wackiness, you know, and because and, I, I found it to be a, a lot more boring than I remembered. I remembered it yep. being a lot more nail biting, intense. Um, as you said, Scott Glenn's great. Um, one of the things off the bat. And of course, I, I have to bring bring this up first and foremost because me and you off air had talked about it when we brought up Night of the Running Man, and this is something we we kind of always wanted to explain just on air. But one of the reasons that both of us had initially watched it was because <laughs> it had the classic N. And for those of you unfamiliar on Cinemax and HBO that Ed and I grew up with in the eighties and nineties, N meant that there was nudity. And of course, as a horny young preteen to teenager. Any type of nudity, you would watch the worst two and a half hour movie for just the flash of a nipple if it said yep. nudity, just to see what kind of nudity there, there was. And we, we picked the right one on this one because it had the rarity of full frontal, albeit mm-hmm. super quick. But uh, Scott Glenn's scene with, with his lover at the beginning, she, you know, nice butt shot and nice full frontal there where she's getting into the bed. And a great scene off the bat, because I didn't really fully remember. It's been forever since I've seen this. They're like talking sweet nothings. And she's like, oh, you're so mysterious. And he's kissing her. And he lovingly puts his his hands on her cheeks. And then snap, breaks her neck. (laughs) Yeah, which is because they they have to apparently get across that the bad guy in a lot of these movies is just a horrible shit bag. Um, But that's not really – the funny part is here is – Okay, he's clearly the bad guy, right? They 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 make that prevalent from the first scene or the second scene of the movie, really. Uh, but the thing is, though, is like Andrew McCarthy is not likable at all 
and it totally makes sense why the guy would want this money back. He's just doing his job, so it's weird that the good guy in the movie is not really the good guy. And he's like, not I remember watching it originally. Yeah, like originally watching it, like I remember, like you know, you're rooting for Andrew McCarthy, and then watching it again now, I'm like, I don't understand why the fuck I was ever rooting for this dude. He doesn't listen to anyone. Every person that helps him, he puts in horrible amounts of danger because he's a fucking coward. He's trying to escape everything the whole movie. It's like he's not, he doesn't fight back at all. And I guess that's kind of the point of Night of the Running Man. He's always on the run. So he's not trying to like kill anybody or do anything. He's just trying to escape every situation he's in. And I made this comment to you uh, off air is like, Okay, so there's the beginning with the Scott Glenn stuff, and you see how he gets the money. And then there's the end, which is what it is. Um, And everything in the middle, it's like 19 of the same scenes with different people and scenarios. But they're all the fucking same. Yep, yeah, he's just a step ahead. Like you said, treats people like assholes. It's like like that um, waitress in the diner. It's like, dude, you know you set her up, you know? I mean, he didn't know because he's an idiot, but it's like... I think, like, going back on it, us as kids, you know, teenagers, we, we probably were like, oh, it's McCarthy from uh, Weekend at Bernie's and Mannequin. So we're, we're like, liking the actor and not the character. Because now that we're older and you look at the character, you're like, dude, this dude's, like I said, he's not even an anti-hero. He's just a piece of shit. He's a cab driver that stole money from the mob because he had good luck. Well, somewhat good luck. Good luck because he didn't die when the the idiot that first stole the money from the mob got killed and it fell into his lap. And then he just goes on to just be a despicable goof. Somehow, even though he looks like shit, gets like the hot-ass nurse, who like I was telling you, man, she's banging. Yeah, who's Janet Gunn, uh, actress Janet Gunn, who people might remember as being part of the cast of the USA Network's Pacific Blue in the late 90s. Pacific Blue, the bike cop show. Yeah, the bike cop show, because that was a thing. And the thing is, it's so funny, because the thing that leads him up to getting into the hospital in the first place is he runs into this guy who he's friendly with, who turns on him because he knows that he has the money. Another great character actor, John Glover. Hilarious scene where he basically ties him to a chair and sticks his feet in boiling water. Yeah, I always remembered that scene. It's brutal. Me too. And that's 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 a pretty... It's like a Mark Lester scene because in a lot of Mark Lester movies, he usually has like one really grotesque ass scene. And this is the closest one that this movie has. But it's weird because like so he burns the shit out of his feet. He still escapes and then ends up in the hospital. And then it's like he basically enlists this. Like that's the theme of the movie too is like every person that he runs across doesn't want to do shit to help him. But he's like, I'll pay you. And I'm thinking, well, by the end of the movie, you're not going to have any fucking money left over anyway (laughs) because you're paying all these people to not kill you or do something or whatever. And it's like most people would have just fucked you over. Like the nurse, like, oh, I'll give you money to help me. It's like, or I'll just take all your money because your feet are burnt and you're never going (laughs) to find me if I take your fucking money, which you stole in the first place. So there's that weird aspect to it. The bottom line is it's just the story of the movie isn't really as compelling as it should be. And I never understood why people didn't talk about this movie more, but now I do. Yeah, when you revisit it. You know know what else is funny that I forgot? 
Scott Glenn's character, he's, he's working for a boss and he's, you know, refers to him as August. And then he goes to report to him and lo and behold, cause it's a Vegas movie, August Garino, Wayne Newton himself. Naturally. I forgot was in it. Yeah. And he, they like do that, um, undercover talk about Scott, Scott Glenn is the uh, assassin taking out people. He's like, I took care of the two stallions and the mayor. <laughs> Yeah, dude, it's just, you don't, the movie doesn't really know what it's trying to be. That's what I mean. Like, there's shit in it that's unintentionally funny because of that. Yeah. So but it it's like, that. literally, it, it's the it's the biggest group of unlikable people. This is another one of those movies where no one, like, you almost root for Scott Glenn because even though he's not unlikable, he actually has his shit together and he's not a complete coward. He just, it reminds me of Rutger Hauer in The Hitcher. He just shows exactly. up everywhere all the time. So then it's kind of hard to dislike him compared to the fuck-up idiot that McCarthy is in the movie. That They don't give you any reasons to want him to get away at all. But he does. <laughs> and, and, of course, it, it contains another pretty cringeworthy 90s sex scene. And it, it's funny going into it because that that's one good thing they stuck with. Like, McCarthy's getting laid with burnt feet. And he, like, keeps cringing when he's making out with her. Like, ah. And she's like, don't yeah. worry, I'll take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> so he's just it's bad music, nonetheless. <laughs> so you can just picture him, like, keeping his feet in the air, just pumping away. Like, well, it's always his teeth. The one thing that I don't get with these movies, and it's becoming a recurring theme, is I don't understand what it was about 90 sex scenes where they just get transfixed on shadows. Yeah, shadows and terrible, of course, music. Yeah, well, really just, awkward music. Like it's just terrible. And, um, but it's it's really funny though, at the very least. <laughs> and with the the um, the guidelines for the What's Real podcast here, you know, any movie that's twenty plus years old, um, but we'll even say spoiler alert, spoiler alert. But Scott Scott Glenn's death solid. I, yeah, I that's remember good. that. Yeah, so and it comes out of fucking nowhere. For, yeah, it comes out of nowhere, and that one. I forgot about that. That was pretty good. And um, the end is terrible. I mean, yeah, atrociously. It's, we're, it's like them basically just getting on a plane. It's like what you said. That's that's the theme for these two. It's it's like the one um, the one week with the uh, the thumbs up, and then the credits roll, and like we talked about uh, even Bloodsport with Van Damme. Like well, you know, you, I'm on the plane waiting for you. And it's yeah. just like, ding, 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 like you, you guys are always late. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, unfortunately, this one did not hold up from our um, shit. What were we in 95? Like 15, 16 year old selves. But that, that's yeah. what will happen in that amount of time. Yeah. So, yeah, we've learned that uh, that, that uh, has been a myth that's been busted that this is a good movie because it is not. Um, I wouldn't really recommend it uh, very much. Like I said, outside of Scott Glenn's performance and uh, some mild nudity, there's pretty much no reason to watch this one. Um, there's not a lot of uh, hilarious moments or anything like that. There's a few laughable scenes. Um, but, you know, I'd have to say on the uh, the five-star scale that we've been using here on the show, this one, for me, gets two stars. Yeah, I was going with two and a half. So There you go. Pretty close so as we usually the are. Running Man. And uh, the one good thing that I can say uh, pretty confidently is we have picked out a much, much better movie for you guys next week here on the segment. Um, and it's one that I don't know about you, the Jay, but I'm definitely looking forward to rewatching. Yeah, because I remember uh, really a, liking it. 
really interesting sci-fi movie from 1993 starring Rutger Hauer. We're talking about Split Second. So that should be a really good one uh, for the show next week because that's a really interesting flick. And we've that that's become a joke, a running joke uh, with our group of friends for years uh, about shitty rainy days. Like, what are we in the movie Split Second? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, the rain has a lot to do with the movie, and we'll obviously talk about that next week. Which as is well. like but, uh, one of Rucker Howard's themes as uh, the famous shot of him in Blade Runner when it's pouring on. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and it's definitely a movie that takes some cues from his role in Blade Runner too. But we'll uh, we'll talk about all that and more next week. So, guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to do our wrap up. And uh, as usual, we're going to spout off about some goofs. So, stay with us, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. This is Ed for the What's Real podcast for Natrona Bottling Company. Over a century after Ed Walsh opened the doors, Vito Gerasoli, the Sultan of Soda, runs Natrona Bottling. Possessing the same love and care for the brand and its methods as Paul did, Vito gave new life to a once-thriving company. Vito has kept the core values of Natrona Bottling alive while placing an emphasis on current trends. Today, Vito Gerasoli, Steve Vokic, and Mary Jane Zdilla endure to operate Natrona Bottling Company just as it did 70 years ago. Using the same vintage machinery and our signature pinpoint carbonation, we continue to mix every batch by hand, giving you a genuine American soda pop. We strive to make sure each bottle receives the same level of attention as it did back in 1904, using 100% pure cane sugar, just as we always did way before it was trendy. We produce authentic, true American soda pop. Natrona Bottling Company, 91 River Avenue, Natrona, PA, 15065. Phone number 724-224-9227. You can check us out online at www.natronabottling.com. And we're back, guys. Thank you so much for sticking it out with us this week and listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. If you guys have anything you'd like to add to the show, if you want to send us comments, questions, concerns, yell at us, anything at all, you could do so by email. And by the way, email is the way you can get in touch with myself, with Jared, or our producer, Cam. You could send that to us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Uh, also, give us a follower. Uh, give us a follow over on the Twitter at w at w at what's real pod one again that's at what's real pod one over on twitter and also if you guys listen on itunes we do really appreciate the reviews that we've been getting recently from people the five star reviews that we're asking you guys to put for us if you listen through itunes so please do that as well so the j what do we have this week on the goof front one of our favorite goofs is Steeler fans who in regular life in his professional career especially is maybe the opposite of a goof but in many aspects and many people will agree with us here he could be a complete goof and that's one mr tom brady himself ah yes tom brady at this past weekend's golf uh, outing with uh, tiger woods and phil mickelson and uh, paid manning we got to see brady look the way we've wanted to see him look for years and that's like a fucking goof as he <laughs> played horrible uh most of the day uh from what i saw and uh, he even managed to split his pants while <laughs> bending over to pick the ball up out of a hole so it's nice to see that you know even though he's a 
you know, 6,000-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback and former MVP of the league, that he's been reduced to a minor character in Caddyshack while golfing. <laughs> yeah. and, and I saw the one Fuck. headline. It's like, you know, it's from like CNN. It's like Tom Brady shows he's human as Tiger Woods backs up trash talk. I'm like, dude, he's not that fucking good at everything. He's a good quarterback. He ain't competing with Tiger Woods on the golf course, dickheads. Well, yeah, it's just like, dude, what do you think? You're going to give him a machine gun and he's going to be <laughs> fucking John Rambo? Yeah. And then you're going to, you know, like he's the type of dude that like he, he shows up somewhere, throws a football 80 yards, walks over, shoots an apple off his cousin's head, d- walks on his hands, and then does a backwards flip into a pool where there's no splash. Yeah, he's not Chuck Norris. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. But yeah, so that, it that was, was the it, coup. The, the coup de gras was the pants split for sure because I was dying when I saw that. I just like the fact I, – I like to think in my alternate universe of a mind that Tom Brady's really good at football but literally sucks at everything else he does in life. Like the dude literally goes to like grab the television remote and somehow ends up like lighting the living room on fire. Yeah, exactly. You, like he's like Homer Simpson other than football. I mean, that's probably not true, but that's just the way I get through life thinking about it like that. Uh, I, yeah, that was great. Because I, I saw like the, um, you know, what I mentioned to you, I, I didn't catch the golf. I, I was aware of it. And the usual J stuff, especially for the pod, like I'll check in on stuff as I can. And like one of the first things I saw was like Tom Brady splits his pants. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And then you look yeah, and so- then his reaction's all goofy. It's a cautionary tale, really, because if you're a grown man, you don't want to be golfing in child's medium pants, apparently. (laughs) Fucking weird. Like, like, there's so little physical exertment that happens on a golf course. (laughs) It's like the fact that somebody ripped their pants is beyond hilarious to me. It's like, because the only real physical like movement you're doing besides walking is bending over and picking to shit get up. your ball. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. I was going to say like, it, it, he just, he, cause he reminds me he's another. So for those that don't know, usual classic side story of Jared and edge world. Like when we grew up, there was a bunch of our friends that, that we were close friends with in our group that were like six, three plus, And they ended up getting the nickname, the old goofies. Because tall dudes uh, like yes. that, because we would do wrestling and all this shit and pick up football. And a lot of them were good athletes and good at sports, obviously. But they were just always goofy because they're so, like, limber and lanky and shit. And that's how Brady is. He's just, like, he's an old goofy. And, and that's how he was on the golf course. And it's like, you know, talk about a goof. Go, G, GRG, I call the segment because it's like Toys R Us. Goofs are goofs. Perfect candidate this week that uh, – the goof himself from New England, picking up his ball, rips his pants. Oh, what God. a goof. He's, yeah, but the good thing is, though, he might be ripping more than his pants this season if they ever get on the field uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, <laughs> yeah. so we'll have to see. Hope, yeah, hopefully he looks like garbage, because I'd, I'd love to see that, because my hatred for this guy knows no bounds, but... You know, we that that's going to be a running theme on the show is my hatred for Tom Brady. If you guys haven't already guessed, oh, of course. And my my good friend, former roommate Murph, listens to the show. You know, you know, we love you, Murph, but we can never, never, ever give props to the Patriots. It's all in yeah, good fuck, fun, but fuck them. Fuck that team forever. It's just <laughs> yeah. how it is here. And as but, I uh, say to you, Ed, even Tom Brady with the models and the 
Super Bowl rings, goose or goose. Exactly. So that's it for us here this week, guys, on the show. I could clearly not talk anymore, so it's time to wind it on down. We thank you all for listening, uh, as we do every week here on the show. And, uh, you know, uh, we appreciate it. Yeah, man. Jay takes it home. Always a shout-out to Cam for all the work he does, the producer. The man, he's like the Wizard of Oz, big face on a screen doing his thing for us. That was weird. Sorry, Cam. Love you, man. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> we both we both need to go to bed and take his house. Like, Jerry, just shut up. I'm stopping it now. But no, hey, you know, love doing it, man. Always laugh. I do always look forward to it, man. It's had a crazy 2020, and the podcast has been one of the best things. So uh, to anybody hearing us right now, man, as I always say, we truly love it and appreciate it. Join us on our on our little podcast journey here, man. It's, it's much appreciated. But, yeah, thanks all, and you'll hear me next week. Absolutely, the J. And, uh, you know, shout out thanks to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts in. The J, I appreciate you sitting down with me here each and every week, as we always do. And uh, to everybody listening, thanks for joining us, guys. We have a great show set up for you next week. We hope you will join us. That's it for us this week here on the show, guys. See you next week from the What's Real podcast. The real question is, what's real?